This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Reed Pence. This week, is mental illness the biggest cause of mass violence? It appears somewhat more likely than the general population, but it's not the majority of causes. And if we just look for mental illness, we'll miss the majority of mass violence. But it is still a big factor. We'll find out how when Radio Health Journal returns. I'm Nancy Benson, host of Radio Health Journal. If you enjoy listening to Radio Health Journal, you'll also like our sister show, Viewpoints, which covers a wide array of topics from education to history to the environment. Here's a preview of what they're covering this week on Viewpoints. Perhaps even more surprising were pictures of just the devastation throughout Germany and Dresden and how whole cities were taken down by bombs. The photographers who documented the end of World War II. Then... These things are non-biodegradable hazardous waste and that they need to be regulated in ways that we haven't done yet. Cigarettes and their toll on our environment. I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in-depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. Listen to Viewpoints on your favorite radio station and subscribe and listen to shows anytime on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Every local government in the United States has started to think about mass shootings and how to prevent them cities and their police departments to schools and their lockdown drills. The FBI says more than 200 people were killed and 700 injured in mass shooter incidents in 2017 and 2018. But exactly what authorities should do about it is a matter of intense debate, based on differing opinions about the cause of so many shootings. For example, virtually all experts agree that mental health issues play some role but it's taken a blue ribbon panel to figure out how much. There's a big misconception that for anybody to perpetrate a mass violent crime, they must be mentally ill. And this is simply a misconception by the lay public to think that this is so irrational that somebody has to be out of their mind to do it. Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman is professor and chair of psychiatry at the Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. Doing it for some completely implausible, immoral, and unimaginable purpose is not prima facie basis for making a diagnosis. And even if somebody reacts irrationally due to an incident that occurs or a belief that they've developed and allowed to fester, that doesn't mean that they're mentally ill. Lieberman is a member of a panel convened by the Medical Director Institute of the National Council for Behavioral Health. Its extensive report concludes that, yes, many people who commit mass violence are mentally ill. They often suffer from untreated psychotic or mood disorders and are compelled by their symptoms to act. But it's far from every perpetrator. Dr. Joseph Parks is a panel member and medical director of the National Council for Behavioral Health. For the studies that looked for things like a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, of schizophrenia, what's usually thought of as a substantial mental illness. The portion came in around 25%, a quarter to a third of perpetrators of mass violence had either a prior diagnosis or a post-diagnosis or clear evidence that they had that sort of disorder at the time they did the act. That compares to 19% of the people in the general population that have a mental illness at any given time. So 
it appears somewhat more likely than the general population, but it's not the majority of causes. And if we just look for mental illness, we'll miss the majority of mass violence. However, that speaks only to those with a diagnosable mental illness. Perpetrators with mental health issues may be much more common. Or, if you define it differently, it may be much less. The studies all use different definitions of what that researcher considers to be mental illness. It goes all the way from the federal definition for the no-fly list, the NICS list, where you can't have a gun or fly, in which case that study found 4.7% of people perpetrating mass violence had a mental illness, a very low number to the high number being a study that used a definition that they described as evidence of mental distress. Well, I'm sure most people don't consider being distressed to be a mental illness. And that study found 68% of people perpetrating mass violence had some mental distress. But since the numbers make it clear you don't need a mental illness to commit mass violence, shouldn't we account for those with mental distress somehow? Who are they? Lieberman says those who are not mentally ill fall roughly into two categories. The first is people who are ideological zealots, i.e. terrorists. They're people like maybe foreign terrorists, like radical Islamic groups like al-Qaeda, or they're domestic terrorists like Timothy McVeigh, who blew up the Oklahoma government building. The second group are individuals who are disgruntled, disaffected, alienated individuals who have been fired at their jobs, slighted by society, feel that they're somehow disenfranchised and living at the margins of society. And these individuals are the individuals fired from the post office and comes back and shoots up his boss and employees to individuals who are kind of survivalists. The common characteristics are these are people that are angry. They feel that life has been unjust, that the community has treated them unjustly, and they identify with groups they feel have been treated unfairly also. They are angry to the point of being hateful, and they're usually fascinated with weapons also. These are the most common factors, and simply put, Anger and hatefulness is not a mental illness. It's a social illness. If we really expect to do anything about mass shootings and other mass violence, Park says we can't simply be guessing about the people who are at risk of carrying them out. So the first thing we need, according to the report, is for groups like the Centers for Disease Control and the Department of Justice to agree on the definition of mental illness and mental distress. Once we do that, Park says we need to be better equipped to identify it in people and offer them mental health first aid. It's a cornerstone of recommendations to prevent mass violence. This is the mental health version of Red Cross first aid, where the average person like yourself gets an eight-hour training to identify signs of mental distress and skills trained on how to talk to a person in a way that's reassuring and to get them connected to treatment where they can be helped. That would be a very early preventative measure. We need to have more campaigns where see something, say something. If you're worried about something, there needs to be a place that people need to be encouraged to reach out, and they need to know who to go talk to. To get that help, the report's recommendations call for a variety of institutions to be equipped with resources to deal with such events. Schools should have them. Employment settings should have means of this. Primary care systems should be connected to mental health care. And in that context, having some type of information provided 
to the HR offices or to the school health office or counseling office that gives them the kinds of things to look for in individuals and therefore think that perhaps they're at risk for having some type of mental distress or mental illness. And then based on that, proactively try and engage them instead of waiting until something happens. Park says in some locations, the process has been more formalized with threat assessment teams that bring specialized experts to evaluation and intervention. This is a method put together by the FBI where you have a team that includes law enforcement, it includes attorneys to protect rights and to assure prosecution when needed. It also includes human resource if it's workplace, school personnel if it's school, and it includes behavioral health. But it's not just the behavioral health clinical. It's a broad investigation of all the risk factors done in a multidisciplinary setting. We're seeing more of these in corporations, at universities, at school districts, and we need to have them in every community. So if you're worried about John, you can give that message to the risk assessment and management team, and they can start taking a look. However, Parks admits that since people with mental health issues are often isolated, they and any danger they may bring are sometimes very hard to spot. There's a lot of people that fit that description that will never harm anybody. We'll end up looking at a lot of people that in the end we're not going to act. This is the problem with mass violence in general. It is a very rare event. It's less than one-tenth of one percent of all homicides. And it's difficult to predict or prevent rare events compared to common events. The easier things to intervene on are things that happen more commonly. I think the best we can do is keep our eyes and ears open. If we see something at workplace, we talk to HR. If we see it at the school, we talk to the school. If we see it in general, we talk to the police. And then we need to have these risk management and assessment teams that can do more thorough investigation. But when an investigation confirms a high risk of threat, what power should authorities have? The Blue Ribbon Committee has recommendations. One excellent method is with the extreme risk protection orders, or red flag laws. These are laws available currently in 17 states where people can go to a judge and say they're worried about John. John's been muttering to himself. He's been saying somebody's got to pay. He's not going to take it anymore. He's been talking about his guns more. And we're worried, you know, we're getting scared of John, Your Honor. And if the judge is persuaded, he can have the police go take John's guns temporarily. So it involves due process. It's not the police acting alone. There's a judge involved. And there's a process for John to get his guns back after there's been some investigation and discussion with John about why he's talking in such an angry, threatening manner. These laws also show great reductions in suicide. Red flag laws are not without controversy, but Parks says in the 17 states where they exist, they've proven successful. Those states are mostly on the West Coast and Mid-Atlantic states, as well as Florida, Colorado, Illinois, and Indiana. But Parks says in every single state, similar laws to remove firearms exist for more specific circumstances. They are common practice in all states in domestic violence. There's not a state in the union where courts don't have a mechanism for removing a gun from a domestic partner that's threatening the person that they're with. And it makes just as much sense if somebody's threatening the neighbor up the street or the church down the block as if they're threatening their spouse or their domestic partner. However, Lieberman says red flag laws are a symptom of a much bigger problem. 
the lack of an effective mental health care system in the United States. He says we need to be a lot better at recognizing and treating mental illness long before it gets to that point. Red flag laws could be passed to make it more difficult for certain groups to obtain firearms or other types of constraints. And even though it's really the Band-Aid solution at the downstream consequence of failed mental health care, it's certainly something that's worth doing if it has, because it could have an impact on the frequency and the lethality of these crimes. It is, in that context, one of the tips of the iceberg of that failed policy, along with homelessness, suicide, addiction, the growing population of mentally ill people in prisons. So it is uh, kind of the extreme consequence of what happens when you don't have a health care system that provides adequate care to this segment of the population. Parks agrees. As it is, even people who are recognized as having mental health issues and want treatment may wait weeks to get it. He says we need more certified community mental health centers with 24-7 crisis response, as well as threat assessment teams and more mental health first aid. All of that could be far more effective at stopping mass violence than all of the lockdown drills you could do. You can find out more about all of our guests on our website, RadioHealthJournal.org. I'm Reed Pence. Staying healthy is key to enjoying a long and active life. Of chief importance, preserving a healthy brain. The brain is one of the most complex organs in the human body, and many influences contribute to its function. According to registered dietitian Courtney Romano, health advisor for the California Table Grape Commission. While multiple factors contribute to brain health, experts believe the foods we eat play a powerful role. Heart-healthy foods from fish to olive oil to vegetables and fruits, including grapes, may contribute to brain health. A preliminary study found that consuming grapes every day helped preserve metabolic activity in regions of the brain associated with early-stage Alzheimer's disease, where metabolic decline takes hold. More research is underway to help understand the potential links between grapes and brain health. Grapes contain over 1,600 natural plant compounds, including beneficial antioxidants and other polyphenols, which contribute to heart health and may play a role in healthy aging. Visit grapesfromcalifornia.com for more information. About 27 million people in the United States have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD. COPD is treatable, yet half of flare-ups are never reported to physicians, suggesting that patients are not seeking appropriate care. There are 1.2 million COPD hospital admissions each year, and one in four patients hospitalized for a COPD flare-up die within a year. Dr. David Menino is a respiratory medical expert at GSK. It is important to act before COPD progresses. Flare-ups should be treated early on before the condition worsens. Having one COPD flare-up increases the risk of having another, and studies have shown each flare-up can cause more lung damage. You don't have to settle with symptoms that interfere with your daily routine. If you continue to experience COPD symptoms, speak with your doctor about what more can be done to manage them. Dr. Menino says studies demonstrate that early treatment brings improvement in lung function, breathlessness, and quality of life. Find out more at COPD.com. It's National Alzheimer's Disease Awareness Month, as well as National Family Caregivers Month. The two go together since there are more than 16 million families and friends in the U.S. caring for someone with Alzheimer's. According to the Alzheimer's Association, four out of five caregivers say they'd like more support in providing care, especially from their families, yet 39% haven't engaged others in caregiving tasks. 
Ruth Drew, Director of Information and Support Services for the Alzheimer's Association, has suggestions on ways to help. Make a standing appointment to give the caregiver a break so they can run errands or go to a support group. Caregivers often feel isolated or alone, so check in with a phone call or stop by for a visit. And when you offer support, be specific. Say, I'm going to the store, what do you need, rather than call me if you need anything. People overwhelmingly agree caregiving for someone with Alzheimer's should be a group effort. Find more tips and resources for caregivers at ALZ.org. Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTracks Communications. If you enjoyed this broadcast, please support our show by subscribing, sharing it with a friend, and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and RadioHealthJournal.net. Also, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Radio Health Journal. Coming up next week on Radio Health Journal. They feel like their lives were shattered. So there's a definite mark in their life about how life was before and how life was after, and they're left picking up these myriad of pieces. Suicide survivors needing more support, but often getting less. Then the significance of the fertility rate reaching an all-time low. We've had a cumulative decline since the beginning of the Great Recession that adds up to something which is quite significant. All that and more on Radio Health Journal.